Pedro Dixon back with you for another Bible Thump. I'm the chief content nerd at Love Thy Nerd, which basically just means I kind of oversee all the articles that go up at lovethynerd.com and uh, oversee and kind of manage a team of editors and writers that put out all that great content. And I'm not going to lie, I'm very biased, but I think there's some really great content up at lovethynerd.com. Definitely check it out if you haven't. Uh, that said, what I want to do today is kind of review what we've done the last few weeks in this series that I've been doing here on um, on identity. Uh, and I want to remind you that when we say this is a Bible thump, I really hope it doesn't hurt. I hope that it encourages you. I hope that it empowers you. I hope that it gives you some sense of hope and purpose and guidance throughout the week. So that's our goal is to look to the Bible to see what hope, what purpose, what guidance it might give us. So your identity What is that? Well, we've talked about how your identity refers to the beliefs that motivate you, how you see yourself, um, and your place in the world. Um, Identity refers to to who you are at your core, in your core being, at the most fundamental level, um, and and how you, and, and really it's how you see yourself. So, your identity is going to shape your story. How you see yourself and your place in the world, the beliefs that motivate you, as you live, those things are going to shape your story, how your story plays out, how the story of your life plays out. And there's lots of false identities out there that we can take on, and these lead to frustration and disappointment and disaster. Um, Adam and Eve's desire to continue their story without God, which is really at the core of Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve decide to take this fruit, right, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It um, It wasn't just that they disobeyed God. Um, it, it was an act of saying, I want to take control of my own story without without God. So, in that moment, Adam and Eve did, the for the first time in human history, um, made a decision that was ultimately an example of, of taking on a false identity, identity. So, the false identity they took on was, I want to be the one that gets to control and decide what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. Um, that's what the tree was about. I think there's a lot we could say, but I think ultimately what's going on there is that they're saying, I don't want God to be the definer of good and evil. I want to decide that. And we don't have to look that far back into human history at times when when people made those kind of decisions. I'll be the one that decides what's right and wrong and see how that led to utter disaster, right? I mean, think about... Um, Nazi Germany is maybe the most obvious example, but there's there's thousands we could point to. You know, manifest destiny. This idea that America is that God is leading, uh, you know, um, colonists to believe that they were settling America under God's guidance and direction and command. And so, when you believe that, right, then the atrocities that you commit against Native peoples can be overlooked, right? Um, That's God guiding and leading us. So, um, you can see how false identities um, can lead to some really disastrous results. I know those are extreme examples, but what we see in these examples is that when we think we get to be the ones that decide what's right and wrong, um, it can lead to some really bad bad outcomes. So, uh, but what we have seen in this series so far is that God is telling a better story for people. In the beginning, God's design for us, our origin is really beautiful and good. In fact, comparing the origin story that the Bible gives us to other ancient origin stories, we see 
that the Bible's origin story is full of love, goodness, and potential, that that human beings were created with this incredible um, identity, right? That's what we get at the outset. This idea of the image of God tells us that we have dignity and potential. It demonstrates God's goodness and kindness over and against every other worldview. And in fact, um, we see early in Genesis, in Genesis 2, God breathing the breath of life into us rather than uh, making us, uh, rather than us being the products of violence between um, selfish gods that are competing for power, like so many other ancient origin stories say. Um, You see, our God uh, lovingly shaped us for His good and for our glory and gave us a tremendously beautiful and and, and life-giving identity that is full of potential. Um, that's the, the beginning picture of the Bible, right? The idea of bearing God's image is a royal image. Um, other ancient people groups would have used that idea, would have been familiar with the concept of the image of God, but they believed only the emperor, only the king bore God's image. And so, when the Bible uses that term, it's doing it deliberately, knowing that that's how people think of that idea of the image of God as being something that kings have and possess. They possess the image of God so that everyone has to obey them and do what they say, right? Because they're the representatives of God. But God says, no, you're all my representatives. You're all created to reflect my goodness and glory and love and justice back into the world in which you live. So, merely by being human, you have a royal origin, you have a royal purpose, you have a royal dignity, you matter greatly to God. So, I said that we were created in the image of God to do at least three things, that this implies at least three things, that we're created to rule. We see this in the way that God called um, Eve and Adam to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and to be good stewards of the earth to work and keep it, uh, right? They were to, to exercise dominion over the world. Secondly, images by their very nature are reflections, right? That's what images do. They reflect reality, a reality. And so, uh, we exist to reflect God's goodness, God's beauty, God's truth, God's justice back into the world. And then thirdly, I believe that to bear God's image according to the opening chapters of the Bible means to work. Um, Now, that may seem depressing because you're like, I really don't like my job, I don't like to work, but um, I think there is a good purpose in the work that God has given us to do. I believe that most work is tremendously good and brings um, goodness back into the world and is actually intended by God to be a reflection of what He did in creation. Um, so, we'll unpack that more in, later, in, in a later uh, session, but today I want to just sort of unpack some implications of this good and glorious identity God has given us as His image bearer. But before we go further, I think it's important to acknowledge that this beautiful beginning that God laid out for human beings was really short-lived, right? While God created Eve and Adam to reflect His glory, His kindness, His goodness, and justice by ruling in His kingdom and bringing His good creation to completion, they decided to do something else, right? We talked about this a little bit ago. They decided they would set out to build their own kingdom. They bought into the lie that God was holding out on them, that He wasn't really good, and that they could be like him by setting out on their own. So, instead of honoring and representing God and the good work he had given them to do, they would set out to define good and evil on their own. And as a result, God curses the ground and shuts them out of the garden, and he shuts them out of the place where his presence was so very near. They would continue their task of working and keeping the garden, but it would be difficult now. It would be taxing work, thorns and thistles, right? And... um, 
and, and it would be painful work. Rather than life-giving and dignity-affirming work, the work they would have to do in the garden out, or outside the garden would be, would be toilsome, would be difficult. You see, in their rebellion, they invited corruption into the kingdom, into God's good world, and the origin of that corruption was in their very hearts. So there's now something fundamentally wrong about human nature that needed to be fixed in order to get back to the garden, right? So when Jesus shows up in Mark 1.15 and begins his public ministry, what does he say? He says this, he says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' arrival on earth marks a significant shift in God's plan of restoration and renewal. Jesus is going to change the hearts of people. You see, John the Baptist would baptize with water, right? But Jesus baptized with fire and the Holy Spirit. Fire is not just a picture of, of judgment, as we so often think, but it's actually a picture of purification. Um, in the Old Testament, fire was constantly used to purify offerings, and it, was, it would have immediately brought that idea of purification to mind for so many in, in Jesus' day. So, when John says Jesus is going to baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit, he's saying he's going to do something about what's wrong with human hearts. What, he's going to do something about what's fundamentally wrong with human nature. So, Jesus' arrival marks a significant shift in God's plan of restoration and renewal. He's going to change human hearts. He's going to renew the image of God in us. This is really good news. Jesus is making all things new. He's going to restore our hearts, restore our dignity, and the dignity of our work. And honestly, the dignity of our rest. God didn't just create us to work. He also created us to rest, right? On the seventh day, God rested. And that's a picture of how God wants us to live. He doesn't want us to spend all our time being productive. He also wants us to spend time taking breaks and enjoying um, creation and enjoying Him. So, Isaiah 11.8 envisions a day when children, infants, will play beside the pits of cobras and toddlers will play beside snakes' dens. Uh, in other words, there's a future of playfulness awaiting us. Um, there's a future also of productive work. One of the frustrating things about work right now sometimes for us is that it's not very productive. It's frustrating. Things don't go the way we want them to. Um, projects end up being a lot more difficult than we think they, they will be. But in Isaiah's vision of the new heavens and the new earth, we read this. People will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and others live in them. They will not plant and others eat. For my people's lives will be like the lifetime of a tree. My chosen ones will fully enjoy the work of their hands. In other words, Isaiah says, and that's Isaiah 65, um, 21 and 22 Isaiah is saying in the future, when God restores the world and restores creation to its intended state uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, that, that work will be productive and enjoyable, and we will get to enjoy the work of our hands. So much of the work that we do sometimes feels like it's taken from us, right? That um, maybe uh, corporations or, or um, you know, whatever you think, taxes, or maybe you think your taxes aren't being used well or whatever, but we, so, so much of the work that we do, it feels like sometimes it's being enjoyed by everyone else and not by the people that we care about and, uh, and not by those in need, right? We have a future of work that's going to be enjoyable and productive, and it's going to bless us, and it's going to bless others. Um, there's work in 
the future for us. But it's good work. It's exciting work. Um, think of it like, you know, some project you did that that was really rewarding and satisfying and blessed you, but didn't just bless you, right? It blessed your family or it blessed a neighbor or it blessed someone in need. It made their lives tangibly better. And in that project, you just, you took a lot of satisfaction and joy. That's the kind of future work that awaits those who look forward to the coming kingdom. And honestly is the type of work that we can participate in now if we'll Look to Christ for strength, for help, for guidance. All right, that said, I want to leave you with some implications of what it means to be made in the image of God, or what it looks like to live out our identity as image bearers. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does this tell us about who we are? What does it tell us about who God designed us to be, to be and what God designed us to do? If we're really made in the image of God, we are rulers, kings, dignitaries, and how should that shape and inform how we live. I want to give you at least three things. First, it shapes our relationship with God. He is not like the pagan gods who create to exploit and objectify and get as much out of other people as possible to get others to do their bidding. That's not how God creates. He doesn't create to make slaves. He creates to make kings and dignities and dignitaries and rulers. He is good and kind, and he creates to share not only his world, but his work. I mean, think about the Great Commission. Isn't that Jesus saying, I'm not going to keep all the work that God has given me to myself, but I want you to share in it. I want you to join me in this great project of making disciples. Um, so, the task God has given us in the garden is good and dignifying. The task he gives us in the church is good and dignifying. His making of people in his image implies that he offers to human beings a relationship with him that is unprecedented in the rest of creation. I think that's the primary thing that we ought to take away from the fact that we're made in God's image, is that God wants to be in a relationship with us that's unlike any anything else. Adam and Eve were his partners in the gardens, in the garden, not his slaves. They were his partners. Um, not to say that they were equal to his stature or his character, but he wanted them to join him in his work in the garden, in his project of bringing order and beauty and benefit out of the good world that he made. So, so the fact that we're creating the image of God shapes our relationship with him. Secondly, the fact that we're made in the image of God shapes our relationship with other people. If the Bible's origin story is true, it should radically shape how we see, interact with, and treat other people. This tells us that people are worthy of our time, attention, and energy. Everyone is. They're worthy of your time, attention, and energy. Even the people you think are too this or too that, too liberal, too conservative, they are kings and queens of the earth. Broken kings and queens, but still kings and queens nonetheless. And they're worth listening to, understanding, and hearing out, no matter how different we think they are from us. So this is the tension that we live in as, as followers of Jesus, I believe. All people are made in God's image, and yet all people have fallen short of his glory. So we need to be willing to be corrected, surprised, amazed, frustrated, disappointed with other people. All those things. We need to be able to listen to people and be corrected by people even who are like outside of our worldview and outside of the faith. They have things that we can learn from them. They can surprise us. They can amaze us. But we also need to realize that the people around us are going to frustrate and disappoint us. And we need to know that going in so that we can still love them and 
still point them to Jesus and still be their friends and still care for them and meet their needs. Um, Think about what James said in James 39, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in His image. Um, How we treat people is an indication of how we see ourselves and our identity and how we see God in His place in our life. The last thing I want to say to you is that if we really believe we remain in the image of God, then that gives us purpose. We exist to reflect His glory. We exist to do the good work that He has demonstrated for us in the garden. Um, We exist to bring His work forward, to be His partners in His work, and to reflect His goodness, uh, justice, mercy, grace, uh, kindness to the world in which we live, the people around us in the world in which we live. So, the image God in humanity gives everyone, regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, ability, economic level, or anything else, it gives us inherent dignity and value. Please hear me say that to you. You have inherent dignity and value merely because you are a human being. If you're a Christian, the Bible would say the old is gone, the new has come. We're given a new humanity and called to promote human flourishing for everyone, whether or not they share a worldview or not. In other words, you don't have to be you don't have to choose, right? You don't have to choose between being pro-people of, of color or pro-police officers, as our culture would say. Um, you can say black lives matter. Um, you can say that as a follower of Jesus because they do, and he cares deeply about people of color in our country. Um, you don't have to choose. You don't have to bind to this false dichotomy that you've got to stand on one side of the aisle or the other. You can choose to love all people, and that means listening to the marginalized. There's a tremendous track record in the Bible, a tremendous history in the Bible of God um, judging his own people because they refused to care for the vulnerable and the oppressed and those whose voices were not heard. You want to silence the voices of suffering people, um, you are not on the side of the God of the Bible. Um, So, let's think about how we can love everyone made in his image. To be a Christian is to trust Christ, to love God supremely, and our neighbors as ourselves. Paul said this in Galatians 3, 27-28, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That's not to say our differences don't matter. They do. And our differences make us unique. In fact, the Bible, I think, would say that God celebrates our differences. But it's to say that we are all given tremendous dignity and value through Christ. And through Christ, He's making a new humanity, right? He's remaking us so that we will begin to live the way that we should have lived, to be people who did care and do care about our neighbors, who do listen to their suffering and do hear about what's going on in their lives and are willing to, to listen and make a difference and make a change so that we might better embrace and live out our identity and so that we might promote a world um, that is much more Christ-like in its vision and purpose. Thanks so much for listening to this Bible Thump. I hope it's encouraged you. I'll continue next week and we'll look specifically at our identity as workers in the garden. Uh, what, what is significant about the fact that God set Adam and Eve in the garden to work? What does that mean for us today as we have incomes and jobs and families that we have to provide for and make money and all these kinds of things? Um, what's the purpose of our work? We'll talk about that next week. Thanks for listening.